In this episode, I'm joined by a fantastic guest, and we're talking about food, restaurants, and supporting local black-owned businesses when you visit D.C. Restaurants is one topic that I get asked about all the time, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say I don't know much about because I really don't eat out all that often. So I'm always thrilled to have a guest who knows the scene and can share tips and advice that I alone cannot. At the end of the episode, we share some recommendations that you can incorporate into your DC itinerary and have quite a fun foodie experience when you're here. With that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Trip Hacks DC Tours. If you haven't heard, our monumental trivia tour is back for 2021. It's a monuments tour with a built-in trivia game, and summer bookings are now open. You can learn more about it over at triphacksdc.com slash tours. Today I am joined by Anella Malik. Anella is a black food blogger, former diplomat, and avid traveler based right here in Washington, D.C., She's the founder of Feed the Malik, a project where she highlights marginalized perspectives in food and showcases some of DC's tastiest treats as well as her own recipes. So, Anella, welcome to Trip Hacks DC. Thanks for having me. Food and restaurants is a high demand topic, but one that I personally struggle with, so I'm thrilled to have you join me for this episode. I'm just going to jump into it because I see you post delicious looking meals on social media all the time, and I'm curious how many restaurants, ballpark, do you think you've been to in the past year? And we can count takeout too, since indoor dining has been limited, of course. Oh, gosh. I mean, if we're including takeout, then a couple hundred, um, at least. (laughs) So part of it was just, uh, we wanted to support local restaurants as much as we could during the pandemic. And I was also kind of going through a job transition. And because of that, Um, our kitchen stuff was in a storage unit in Germany for most of the year. And what that meant was that like all of the things that I, as a food lover had invested in so that I could feed myself at home. Well, like pots and pans and knives and (laughs) our plates, (laughs) we didn't have access to, and I really didn't have the money, but also didn't want to replace it all at once. So, um, we just went really heavy on the takeout, which I now I'm like, yeah, that probably cost us way more money in the long run, but it was a really fun adventure. So I'd say at least 200, uh, maybe more because probably once a day, most days of the week we were dining out. That's probably about 180 more restaurants than I've tried during the pandemic, (laughs) but that's great because one thing I don't think visitors always appreciate about D.C. is that there are so many choices, like literally in the hundreds or even thousands of places to choose from. Everything, almost everything. And I feel like D.C. in the last few years has has grown its reputation for the food scene and people now kind of know about it, but for a long time was like underestimated. It was the not so exciting, you know, step sibling of the quote unquote big cities. And then in the last five years, I think in the food space, there's been this recognition that, oh, DC has a really vibrant restaurant scene and a lot of cool stuff is happening here. People ask me for recommendations all the time because they're visiting and Trip Hacks DC is about tips for travelers. But restaurants is an area where I struggle 
because I could tell you about all the places in my neighborhood, but people who are here on vacation are not staying in my neighborhood. And I don't have a ton of experience with restaurants in other parts of the city. So when I think about getting out and trying new places, I usually start with some sort of guide, whether that's the Michelin Guide to know where all the highest-end restaurants are, or Washingtonian Magazine has their very best restaurants guide that their food writers put together. And then last summer, I discovered your restaurant guide, or I guess I should rather say restaurant directory. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is it and what inspired you to create it? Mm, So it's a directory. It's not a guide. And I say that specifically because I am working on a guide for people who don't want to have 500 plus suggestions and want something more curated. But last spring, early on in the COVID pandemic, I started creating it um, mostly for me. I started working on a guide to Black-owned restaurants and food businesses in the D.C. area, so D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, but really just for me because I knew from the very early reporting and from what I know about American history that the Black community was going to be hit extremely hard by COVID uh, because of socioeconomic inequality, you know, unequal access to medical treatment and care, and also, as we know, um, the business environment is not exactly equal either. So. I figured I'm a food blogger. I love dining out. I'm a foodie. This is a concrete way that I can, you know, be conscious about how I'm spending my money. So I started creating it for me and I, it started with a list on my phone and I thought, oh, I guess I'll put it on my website. Um, and then I ended up building and building and building it <laughs> until what it is now. And it's also undergoing yet another overhaul now where we are, you know, recreating a new map function. Um, it's searchable. It has, you know, you can search by neighborhood, by food type. Um, now we've added whether these places have vegan or vegetarian options. And it's really just grown to be this very dynamic, very complex project, but it's my baby and I love it. <laughs> It is really helpful because one way that I've used it, and I know the map is currently under construction because of some hiccups with Google Maps, but one way that I've used it was to open the map and zoom in on my neighborhood. And I just said that I could tell you about the restaurants in my neighborhood, but I guess what I really meant was I could tell you about the food and maybe about the atmosphere of the restaurants in my neighborhood, but I actually knew very little about who owns them or what their stories are. So it really opened my eyes in a way that I wasn't expecting. And of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg because I could take that map and I could drag it around to other neighborhoods and learn about places elsewhere too. You know, it's it's still something that I update every month and I think I've barely scratched the surface, um, right? There is no like centralized directory. And a lot of this is word of mouth or just my Google searching, my being curious about a place that I come across on Instagram and, and doing more research on it, you know, on my own. And so I expect this project to continue to grow and change over time. Last May or June, a lot of people, including me, became much more conscious of going to Black-owned businesses And it was also a time that the owners of those businesses were starting to advertise that they are Black-owned businesses. And in this context, I've heard you use the term June boom. So can you explain for the listeners what you mean by June boom? Yeah, so the June boom is actually something that myself and my Black creator friends use a lot. The June boom describes this particular phenomenon in 2020, where because of you know, the groundswell of support for Black Lives Matter and our attention to civil rights uh, in June of 2020, 
everyone black that I know got this wave of kind of attention and support. And it happened in so many different ways and so many different dynamics that it was really overwhelming. So your friends would be reaching out to you to ask you if you're okay and have really intense conversations that they probably have never initiated before. If you are a creative or you know, a writer or content creator, publications would be reaching out to you every day, literally five, 10 times a day to try to get you to work with them or to comment on something. And if you had a business, right, we saw this groundswell of, of uh, attention and support for those businesses as well. So the June boom is that phenomenon. And that's what we call it. And I call it that because it was in some ways very positive, but it was also extremely overwhelming. And as we've seen over time, you know, people's attention to the issues of the black community has waned and that's normal with um, every crisis we have. Right. And, and now we, we have moved on to other crises and um, that doesn't mean that people don't care about it at all. It just means that our attention is somewhat limited and fixed. And we, unfortunately in our society tend to really put attention on issues of racial inequality when there's violence. And, um, you know, now we, we see this with the Asian American community as well and their struggle for safety and protection uh, in this modern environment. Last summer, we really didn't have any tourism in Washington, D.C. I actually posted a video on the TripX <laughs> DC YouTube channel in June of the National Mall completely devoid of people. And I still think about that video because it will probably never be like that again. Travel is definitely coming back this year, though, and it sounds like the momentum has waned a little bit since last year's June boom. So I guess my question is, if someone's traveling to D.C. this year and they're wondering if it's still important to support Black-owned businesses, how would you react to that kind of question? I mean, I would argue that you should care about equality and human rights every year. Um, And that, of course, extends to the Black community and to other marginalized communities. But for D.C. specifically, if you're coming to D.C. and you're interested in food, some of the like legacy DC foods are black foods or foods historically associated with the black community. So half smokes, right. And mumbo sauce, those two are deeply entwined in the African-American experience here, even the current, and this is national, the current fried chicken sandwich craze, right. Fried chicken is, is a, a food that's deeply tied to the black community in many sometimes difficult, but, you know, really historic ways. Um, And so when you're looking at DC too, then you have the Ethiopian uh, restaurant scene here, which is really, really vibrant in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. And some of the, you know, the best Ethiopian food you can get in the United States. And that's something that depending on where you live, you might not have access to. So that might be a whole new cuisine for you as well. And those are all deeply tied to the the Black community. So if you're coming to DC and you're interested in the food, you should care about this issue because you care about equality and human rights, but also because if you skip these restaurants, if you skip these foods, you are skipping some of DC's best and most famous and most interesting foods. I think that's exactly right, because people ask me all the time, what is the D.C. food? And what they're really saying is, okay, New York has the bagel and Philadelphia has the cheesesteak, so what's D.C.'s equivalent of that? And it's not as simple as saying there's this one single thing. Of course, we have the half smoke, and the famous place to get a half smoke is Ben's Chili Bowl, and then there's wings with mumbo sauce, which I'm going to ask you about in a little bit. So if you want to travel to D.C. and experience the local cuisine, you really have to try these foods. And I also think that the reason 
that DC has like multiple of these foods is just because the city, even though it's small, it's geographically small, is really dynamic. And we see that here in the restaurant space that, that there's so much going on. Um, there's lots of people always coming in and out, pop-ups, you know, really creative ideas and just a variety of cuisines. One of the types of DC food that you mentioned is Ethiopian food. And when I was looking at the restaurant directory on Feed the Malik, I noticed, I guess not surprisingly, that many of the restaurants are Ethiopian restaurants. Now, Ethiopian is one of my favorite foods. I'll admit (laughs) that it's a different style of food than I grew up with. So I recommend Ethiopian food to visitors whenever someone asks. But for a lot of people, they have literally never tasted it or been to an Ethiopian restaurant in their entire life. So what advice would you have for someone in a situation like that? Okay, so first and foremost, I think that um, Ethiopian food can be kind of intimidating to Americans sometimes or just people in general who haven't experienced it because of the experience of eating with your hands. But that is something that's common in many, many cultures. And so when you go to an Ethiopian restaurant, you're often going to get a variety of stews, sautés and dips. Think of them that that way um, with a flatbread that is basically a sourdough flatbread. And you rip off pieces of the flatbread and you use it to scoop up the stew and the dips and the sautés, right? So it's basically bread and dip. Think of it that way, if that makes you feel more comfortable with the experience. And what I also would say, and this is really important for travelers, is that one of the reasons why I love to always um, recommend Ethiopian food, right, is that there are typically a variety of both meat-centric and vegan or vegetarian options. So it is actually great for groups and it's great for groups where there are a variety of diets (laughs) because you can get basically everything. And what I usually tell people is to start with a sampler. And that is, you know, very common on menus at Ethiopian restaurants is they'll offer a sampler either mixed or just vegetarian or, um, you know, just meat dishes. And that way you get to try a few bites of like 10 things on the menu and you can decide what works for you and what doesn't as far as flavors, texture. And I really think Ethiopian food is overlooked by uh, vegetarian travelers often. I get a lot of questions from people who are asking about uh, black owned vegetarian restaurants in DC. And there are a few and they market themselves right as, oh no, this place is entirely vegan or vegetarian. But beyond those few that are marketed that way, you have this entire spectrum of Ethiopian restaurants. And you do have to ask if they're vegan because some of them might use, you know, animal fats in their cooking, but often they are both vegan and vegetarian. Um, And so it's just this whole sector that I think is overlooked because when we as Americans think of vegetarian restaurants, we think of like salad bars and maybe a soup place, maybe a place for smoothies or like, you know, vegan waffles are trendy right now, but we don't think of like a dinner spot that you could take your whole family. I want to re-highlight one thing you just said, which is that Ethiopian restaurants are family friendly. A few years ago, I did a video with Tina Smith, who used to write a kid's blog. Unfortunately, she doesn't live in D.C. anymore. And one thing that has stuck with me since we made that video is that she recommended Ethiopian as a great place to go when you're traveling with kids because you eat it with your hands. (laughs) And kids just love to grab that injera, the Ethiopian flatbread, and dig right in. So if you're feeling intimidated, you can kind of think of yourself as just being a big kid, and maybe that will help reduce some of the anxiety. I mean, that's a really great way to think of it. And also we, when we're traveling, 
and I say this as an avid traveler, so much of the, the, I think the joy of the experience comes from things that are new and novel, right? You get out of your comfort zone, you get to leave your house and, and see things you haven't been seeing in your small apartment for an entire year during the pandemic. Um, and just lean into that newness and, you know, treat it like any other travel experience where people go, um, I am not an adventure traveler, but people, you know, might go skydiving or things like that. And I'm like, well, if that is great for you, then I think trying new foods should be like relatively simple. Sometimes people ask me questions like, what's the best burger in DC? Or what's the best pizza in DC? And the truth is, even if you find the best burger in all of Washington, DC, chances are it's not going to be as memorable as trying a brand new type of food like Ethiopian for the first time. That's going to be a memory. That's going to be part of your whole travel experience. That's true. And I I mean, I sometimes, and this is odd because I think people expect me as a food blogger to have like really strong prescriptive recommendations about what is the best. And I always tell people, you know, I really can't answer your question about what's the best because it's completely subjective. <laughs> what price point are you looking for? What atmosphere are you looking for? Um, do you prefer sweet flavor profiles or salty? Like all of these things go into what you think is going to be the best. But what I can tell you is that, you know, you should be open to trying these experiences when you're here in DC, you should be open to trying some of the local foods because they're amazing. And then maybe by the end of the trip, you can figure out what you think was the best. Going back to the point you made about getting a sampler the first time you eat Ethiopian food, I completely agree with that suggestion. And I actually get a sampler whenever I go to a new Ethiopian restaurant because they might make the food a little differently than other places. So I want to get a sense my first time of what they offer. And then when I go back, I might drill down on the menu a little more. Yeah, I like that idea. One thing I discovered when I started using the Feed the Malik directory is that Black-owned restaurants are all kinds of different cuisine. I'm curious to know, when you were building out the directory, were there any places that surprised you to make it onto the list? Hmm. I wouldn't say surprised me, but... You know, I've been interested in food and in, in Black food traditions for a long time. And so I will say when I first started thinking about food a little bit more deeply, I was just surprised by the diversity of offerings from, you know, Black food folks. Um, because when you, at least when I was growing up, my perception was really limited, right? Your world is small when you're younger. My world was small and I was, you know, exposed to certain cuisines through my family. But beyond that, like that was my conception of like, what is black food? And I didn't grow up in a big city. <laughs> so um, I, I go to college and then to grad school and move to progressively larger places that have, you know, more diverse populations. And that was really where I was like, oh, you know, like this experience of black cuisine is really the experience of a broad diaspora. Um, and so of course it's going to represent many cuisines and of course it's going to be, uh, manifest in a variety of ways, but like my childhood perception was like maybe Caribbean food because I had a lot of Caribbean aunties and uncles and like Southern food, right? That was it. Um, uh, but it's so much more than that. I also had a small worldview of food when I was a kid. Around here, we probably thought of soul food or Southern food in that category. But as you travel to different places, your eyes start to open to the reality that it's much more complex than you originally thought. Yeah. 
People ask me about good places to eat on the National Mall, and this is an extremely hard question to answer because, frankly, there aren't a lot of great options. There are. But I often say, (laughs) if you're able to get tickets to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and you're there around lunchtime, eat at the Sweet Home Cafe. So I'm curious if you've been to the Sweet Home Cafe and what you thought about that experience. Yes. So this would be my recommendation as well, because my experience on the National Mall is that it's just, it's not even that there's not a lot of good food. It's that the mall itself is so long (laughs) and all of the buildings on it are huge. So you're going to maybe hit one maximum two stops before you're exhausted and hungry on the National Mall. And that's just not a lot of, of space to really try to explore, you know, a variety of restaurants. And it's, there's just not a ton there. So The National Museum of African-American History and Culture, I think, is absolutely the best spot in that part of the city. Um, And the Sweet Home Cafe is just a really cool experience. So when you walk in, it's definitely a museum cafeteria, right? You're going to to be in this large dining hall, but they've curated the menu based off of historic, regional African-American cuisine. So you're going to see... Uh, mini menus that are broken up by the region. And, you know, those menus are representative of, of traditional foodways from that region. And so you'll see the Creole coast or, um, you know, there will probably be <clears throat> some sort of barbecue station or things like that. And I really like that because you do get to pick and choose from what parts of this African-American experience you want to eat. And the food's honestly really good. And there was a lot of research that went into building those menus and creating this project because it's a history and food project at the same time. So it's very cool. And I always tell people that if you're going to go to that museum, first of all, you need a whole day because it's huge. And it's such an important part of the American, you know, historical experience, but also because the food there is good as well. So it's a, like a good whole day. And then you could maybe branch off and do a couple other shorter things that are nearby on the mall. The American Indian Museum is similar. Both museums have the word culture right in the name. And that's important because it means that when you go to the museum, you're not just looking at historic artifacts. You're also getting a taste, in this case, a literal taste of the culture as well. So both are excellent places for lunch. The tricky thing about the National Museum of African-American History and Culture is that since it opened in 2016, you've needed a timed ticket to go. Though I suppose this summer, you're going to need a ticket to go to all of the museums. So you have to plan it out in advance. But if you can get in there and go to the Sweet Home Cafe for lunch, I do recommend it. And I've I've also, you know, I I heard similar. I haven't eaten at the American Indian Museum, but I've heard that that is also um, a good stop for lunch. And I know that there was kind of a similar project there about representing, you know, traditional indigenous foodways well. And I've heard it's done very well. With the American Indian Museum, the term American Indian refers to indigenous peoples from all of North, Central, and South America. So when you go to the cafe, you go around to stations, and each one is a different culture from a different part of the continent. To change gears a bit, there is a YouTube channel called First We Feast, and a few years ago, they did a short documentary about mumbo sauce. And the premise of this little documentary is that this sauce is an important key to the non-federal culture in D.C., So I'm curious, what do you think about mumbo sauce? And do you have a particular favorite place to get it? So I love mumbo sauce. And it's something that I hadn't had before I came to D.C. My husband hadn't had it either. And um, I don't know how to describe it to people. It is almost like a 
halfway between ketchup and barbecue sauce. Um, and it's a staple at carry out restaurants in DC. You'll see people often put it on wings, fries, you know, I really like to use mumbo sauce at home, which I, I think surprises people because typically you do get it from carry outs, but it's so flavorful. It's great on salmon. Um, I love making like rice bowls with chicken and adding mumbo sauce and, there are quite a few local companies that make mumbo sauce that sell them in stores. There's Capital City, which I think you can also get in stores nationwide now. Um, and I think they're in Target, right? So that's like, they've, they're really on shelves. Um, and then there's another one that I like called Uncle Dell's Mambo. And that one is more local. And that one was founded by brothers. I think they were 16 and 17 when they founded it. And it's so good. And there's spicy versions, sweet versions. It is really like the DC sauce. I think your description of mumbo sauce is very good. The way I think of it is, take a condiment like Heinz ketchup. It doesn't matter where in the world you travel, chances are you're going to find Heinz ketchup, and you're going to know exactly what it's going to taste like. Whereas with mumbo sauce, every place has its own recipe. So everywhere you go, including in your case, your own kitchen, (laughs) it tastes a little bit different. And that means that people who live in D.C. who are into mumbo sauce tend to have personal favorites, and they like some of the sauces more than others. So one of my favorites locally is Uncle Dell's. And for anyone coming to D.C. in the near future, honestly, you have to get sometimes outside of D.C. to really, truly explore the food scene here because the district itself is small geographically and a lot's happening in Maryland and Virginia. So in Arlington, there is Queen Mother's Fried Chicken, which is one of my favorite places. They sell incredible fried chicken sandwiches that are just like super well executed, but also over the top. And they have, you know, a really cool cultural mission as well. And they have been serving a fried chicken sandwich that has Uncle Dell's mambo sauce on it. And I would say that if anyone is coming to the area and has a hankering for fried chicken, but also wants to try mambo sauce, that would be a good place to start. And you've raised an interesting point, which is that the best foods are not necessarily in the District of Columbia. There's an economist, Tyler Cowan, who does food blogging on the side. And a few years ago, he published a book. And his premise is that most of the best immigrant-owned restaurants are not in the district because the rents are too high. That's true. So they tend to set up shop in places where they can afford rent. And that might be a strip mall in Maryland or in Virginia. So as you explore the food scene in D.C., you will quickly discover that many of the best places that can't afford D.C. rents are not downtown or sometimes in the city at all. You know, we never really had a car before, and we're we're not really car people like DC, we always took the Metro, but uh, really because of my food adventures, we were like, we have to get a car because, and there, it's not even that they're that distant, but they're just so many incredible spots in suburbs um, that don't necessarily align with the Metro rail. So if you're not able to do it on a first trip, that's okay. I don't usually recommend people do the airport rental car on their first trip, but if you've been to DC a few times, and you want to try something different, you want to do one of these little adventures, as you call them, it can be quite fun. You obviously spend a lot of time on social media, Instagram mostly, I think, but TikTok as well. And there are a lot of DC foodie accounts on both of those platforms. One thing that I struggle with when I come across these accounts is determining whether they're trustworthy for recommendations. Obviously, the food photography is beautiful, But food that photographs the best isn't necessarily the food that tastes the best. So I'm curious to know what you think about these foodie accounts and if they're a good way to discover new places to eat. 
I have to say this delicately because I honestly think that most of the food creators that I see are doing really interesting things. Whether or not I would seek them out for restaurant recommendations is a different question, but this is a group of people who are generally young, predominantly women, who have created something out of just a laptop and a phone typically. Um, So I always have to start there because I think in our culture, we tend to think of influencers and bloggers as just these like kind of, you know, uh, kind of vapid, maybe superfluous presence when really we're talking about an emerging industry that um, I would argue if, (laughs) if the majority of them were men, we would be calling them the next generation of, of tech scions, but that's a separate conversation. But as a consumer, I would say that it depends on what you're looking for, but there's so many creators out there that what you're looking for definitely exists, which is cool. That's a cool part of the internet. You don't have to wait for the Washingtonian to make a guide um, to your neighborhood. I bet you multiple people have already made them on their own and they probably live in your neighborhood. You just have to find the people who are offering what you're looking for. So for example, um, I generally try to say no to free food. Um, and that's just part of my kind of business model and part of, you know, my values and sometimes I'll accept it, but I, try to be as independent as I can, uh, because that means that I'm not reliant on invitations from restaurants to have something to showcase it. It does mean that I'm spending a lot of my own money, but, um, I think it gives me a broader range, right? It it lets me go out to places that they don't have the PR budget and, and they don't know what PR is and, and, um, highlight really small mom and pop shops. And lots of bloggers do that. And lots of DC food bloggers do that and are really intentional about showcasing the kind of really rich array of things in the district. If that's what you're looking for, great. But frankly, some travelers are looking for the most Instagram worthy smoothie latte dessert because they want that, you know, photo to take home from their trip. And there's nothing wrong with that either. So I always tell people who say, is it really worth it? You know, should I be looking at food bloggers or influencers? And I'm like, yes, you should just make sure you know what you're looking for. Uh, Do you want to go on vacation and come back with the best photos of food and other things in DC that you could ever take? Well, there are plenty of influencers that will show you um, the coolest graffiti to take photos in front of (laughs) the best spots on the national mall to get a photo. And they'll have on their websites tips for the best times to go to get the photo. But if you want to come to DC and you don't necessarily care about the Instagram worthy moment, and you want to have, you know, the best meal or try the the coolest, newest, trendiest restaurant that is offering something that's not available in your city that you heard about, there is definitely an influencer who will teach you about that as well. I think that is excellent advice. And with that, I want to move on to the final part of the conversation, which I know is what many listeners came for, which is Anella's favorites. The way that this works is that I have several prompts written down here. And based on the prompt, you can tell me where you would personally go to eat. Okay, let's do it. All right. First one is, where would you pick to go if you only have $10 to spend? Oh, this is so hard. <laughs> um, because I am a 
small person with a large appetite. Um, <laughs> so I would probably go with $10 to Roaming Rooster and get a fried chicken sandwich uh, for a couple reasons. The owners are super nice. I have met a few of them. I've been in there a lot because it's close to my house. And so it's close to my house. And it's one of the most popular restaurants in DC, I think for good reason, because it's not fancy. It's right now mostly uh, carry out. I don't even think they're, they're allowing seating indoors. And it's just really good fried chicken. Um, you can choose your, your spice level. So I warn you, if you choose hot at Roman Rooster, it is hot, hot, like blow the top of your head off hot. People, I think are like, oh, it'll be like, you know, a little bit. No, uh, if you're sensitive, go with medium or mild. But uh, what was it? Uber Eats data showed that it was the number one ordered from restaurant in the district during the pandemic, which I was definitely contributing to those numbers a little bit. It's especially impressive because it's a relatively new restaurant. Now, of course, when I say that, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not brand new. It's been around for at least a few years, but it's not like Ben's Chili Bowl, which has been around for <laughs> decades. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think a few years, three, four years now, um, and they've grown rapidly and they, they actually have grown rapidly through social media, not a blogger, but a customer posted a photo of one of their chicken sandwiches when the Popeye's chicken sandwich craze happened and said, but what about Roman rooster, this local place by my house? And it just blew up, right? It went super viral. And then people, once they went, were like, oh, it really is really good. Um, and they're, they have a couple locations in DC now. And I think a third one is opening and it's just well-executed fried chicken. So if you have 10 bucks, definitely do that. It'll fill you up. I have to admit, I discovered it during the Popeye's chicken sandwich craze. Now, (laughs) I am not a fan of fast food of any brand. So when I heard about the Popeye's sandwich, I honestly just didn't get it. But then, as the story goes, this person said, well, if they're sold out of chicken sandwiches at Popeye's, or even if they're not, you should come to Roaming Rooster. And you're right, the two sandwiches are not even in the same universe as far as I'm concerned. Okay, other end of the spectrum. Where would you go to eat if you just won the Powerball and money is no object? So I have actually been to this restaurant, but I haven't gone for the experience because it's expensive. So um, El Cielo is a fine dining Colombian restaurant that just opened in the last year in La Cosecha, which is a a Latin marketplace in the Union Market District, which everyone should go to if you're coming to DC. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Go to La Cosecha. It's really cool. Um, And so they do a la carte and great cocktails, but they have a 22 course tasting experience. They literally call it an experience. And I have heard it's just extravagant and over the top and lovely. Um, And that is something that I've been eyeing, but I just don't feel like I can make the leap for that yet financially. And I will say that even though it is um, fine dining, they just got their first Michelin star. The vibe is also very casual. So, you know, it's, they managed to do fancy without being fussy, which is my favorite kind of fancy. Um, (laughs) So you'll see people in jeans and you'll see people with their kids um, and there'll be music and, you know, it won't, it won't be, I think, as, uh, as sedate as some people might assume. This next one touches on a dilemma that I know many travelers face, which is, Where would you go if you're traveling in a group and no one can agree on anything? (laughs) So this is, this happens to me with my group when I travel with them, like my friends and family pretty often. 
And uh, frankly, I usually just choose the closest place that has a decent Yelp rating, uh, but I won't give that answer here Um, because sometimes it's about just having a dinner with your friends before anyone gets too hungry so that they get hangry. But if no one can choose and you're with a group of people, this is hard. Uh, I would probably go to Ethiopian because then if someone's vegetarian, they have more options than just a salad and fries. Right. And there are so many good Ethiopian restaurants in DC. I will not name one and say, you should go there. I will say that when you're here, you can look up, just Google top Ethiopian restaurants, DC and eater will have a guide and the Washington post will have their favorites. And any of those that you go to, you will have a good time. I think another idea is what you alluded to in the previous answer, which is Union Market and La Cosecha, because everyone can eat something different if they want. That's true. I, and especially um, for people who are unfamiliar, right, the, the Union Market and La Cosecha, so they're basically these two markets um, that are one block away from each other. They're right side by side. La Cosecha has a variety of, of Latin vendors. And then Union Market has just an array of vendors. And there's everything from ramen, some really incredible ramen, uh, to a boutique coffee. And like I said, this uh, fine dining Colombian restaurant, but also Peruvian chicken. Um, so that would be good as well, because you could just let people fan out and everyone go to their own spot and meet in the middle. <laughs> this next one is for folks who only have a limited amount of time. Where would you go if you only have 15 minutes to get in and out? Oh, 15? We could do 30. <laughs> okay, I would. I, I got it in 15. I got it in 15. I would go to Yellow the Cafe, which is a daytime cafe in Navy Yard. But here's the thing. Yellow the Cafe is the cafe from Albi, which is, I think it was the last year was one of the, or the best restaurant in DC. It's new. It is just phenomenal um, Levantine cuisine. And so their daytime cafe is great because they'll, they have coffees and pastries that are all freshly baked and really interesting, like a tahini cookie. And, um, you know, they'll have like a date latte, but you can also get wraps and salads and just like really, really good, interesting cuisine. Um, that if you go to the cafe, you can definitely be in and out in 15 minutes because you order at the counter, you grab your stuff, there are tables there outside, or you can take it to go. You're right. That is a 15 minute or less option. Boom. This next prompt is one you've already touched on a bit. Where would you go if you have vegetarians in your group? Definitely Ethiopian. <laughs> um, but I would say, what else? I'll try to give one other option because I know that that is not going to satisfy everyone. So or we can make it really hard and say, where would you go with vegans in your group? Mm, I actually, for vegetarians, would go, and you can you can make it vegan as well. I would go to Chaya Tacos, which has a few locations in DC, um, but is a vegetarian taco spot that uh, is casual. It's going to be quick. Order at the counter. You know, take it to your table. But I'm an omnivore (laughs) and I, myself and my husband both will demolish some chaya tacos. And it's, I think one of those options that's always good. It's really consistent and it's relatively affordable. And when you're traveling, that's important. DC can be, though the museums are generally free, you know, it can be a very expensive city to come here for a vacation. So I don't want to give people just like 
you know, fine dining option after fine dining option. So hit something quick like Chaya Tacos and you can uh, do a, you can do it all vegan or vegetarian. And that's a good tip that I want to call out. If you're a vegetarian, it doesn't mean you have to go to places that are strictly marketed as vegetarian restaurants. Especially in a city like D.C., right, where there there is a lot of tourists and they know that people are often in and out of this city. And so I feel like there's more than some other places I've traveled. There's a little bit more accommodation on local menus here generally. This next one is for families. Where would you pick to go if you were traveling with young kids? So if I was traveling with young kids, I would actually then now say your best bet would be to go to a place like La Cosecha or Union Market. Because the thing about these, and they're they're like food halls, but larger, these two places we keep referencing, is that your kids can run if they want to run. <laughs> There's space. Um, you can go up on the rooftop at Union Market as well. And so you can spread out. It, no one's going to be looking at you if your kids are loud. Um, you can get everything there from, you know, chicken and fries to uh, something a little fancier. So I think adults and young children would be satisfied. And I often see families there with kids. I do too. And this last one is, where would you pick to go if you want dessert or something sweet? Ooh, this is so easy. <laughs> um, and I actually haven't been there as much as I have wanted to because they are open on the weekends and my weekend time is always so fiercely limited. Um, but La Bodega, which is, it is a, like, how do I describe it? A weekend pop-up bakery inside of a restaurant um, in D.C., that is led by a James Beard nominated baker who is absolutely phenomenal. And the whole team there is phenomenal. And the treats they make are inspired by, um, you know, the, her childhood growing up in New York and the bodegas there, but also, you know, her um, Afro-Caribbean heritage. And they're, they're just always doing something creative and, you know, one week it'll be like a guava donut <laughs> and the next week there'll be plantain sticky buns. And so you usually have to pre-order, but it's again, a really casual kind of grab and go bakery setup. So it's cool. I think if you are visiting, you, you know, pre-order or they do accept walk-ins, you snag something on the weekend with a coffee and then it's in a cute little neighborhood so you can go walk around. Um, but that's definitely, that would be my pick. Well, I have to say, I think that your picks are perfect for anyone coming to D.C. who wants to experience some of the local culture and eat well. And with that, I want to say thank you, Anella, for spending your time to talk food, restaurants, and supporting Black-owned businesses with me. We've mentioned the Feed the Malik blog and some of your social media handles. Is there anywhere else people can follow along and keep up with you and your food adventures? I would say the easiest way to keep up with my work is on Instagram at Feed the Malik. Um... I am working on uh, a, a book project this year. So my website, feedthemalik.com is still there. There's still stuff on there, but I'm just not publishing there as much as I normally would because I'm trying to direct my writing energy towards another project. So Instagram is probably the best and most accessible place to get my most recent food pics and see what's new, what's happening, what's open. Um, and you can always DM me there. I get a lot of travelers who DM me asking me for 
my top recommendations, and I'm always happy to send those along. I will have all of those links in the show notes, and we'll look forward to your upcoming book as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.